Well, good morning, everybody. Um, we're going to be in Exodus 14, um, right where we were in the Bible class this morning. Um, it's really good to see everybody this morning. Um, something kind of as an aside, uh, I don't usually talk about, but um, one of the saddest things that I ever heard at an assembly was when I was in Minnesota, my dad and I, we would travel, I think, twice a month. Uh, at a certain time, we were traveling twice a month to help out a church in Rochester. Very small group, um, comprised mostly of older ladies, and so they needed help with the Bible classes, the sermon, song leading, all this. Um, and I remember uh, one day when we were there, there was a lady who came to visit with... I think it was three older kids. She was a single mom. And her kids were running around. They were getting into things, making a lot of noise, and um, didn't bother anybody. And it was a joy to see her. And I remember after the assembly, we were trying to really encourage her and just be like, hey, it's so good you're here. And, you know, it's so cool you brought your kids. And you know, we were all trying to be so encouraging. And she was so apologetic. She said, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I'll never come back again. I'm so sorry. I'll never be back. And you know she never came back. And nobody was bothered by her kids. In fact, it was a joy that she chose to be there. Kids are going to make noise. That's just how it is. Um, and it's, it's a joy to hear kids. I remember um, there's times, this, this isn't one occasion, multiple occasions, brethren have visited here and they say, you know, at the congregation where we're at, there's only elderly. And it's such a joy to see kids here in a small group. So for whatever it's worth, um, hearing kids is very encouraging. It's, it's not a nuisance. It's not, not, not a burden on us to hear kids making noise. Exodus chapter 14. Uh, the point of this lesson is going to be relating to the Exodus. And thinking about this account of history as something that we can look at very personally. Um, the Exodus set a foundation for the story of Israel as a nation. As we talked about this morning, it was to define their identity. And if we're reading it and looking at it in the bigger picture of what God has done through Jesus, has done for us, there are so many rich lessons. And even in this sermon, we're hardly going to scratch the surface of what's here. And so I hope this can encourage you to see more in what God does here with Israel and to see yourself in these events and understand ways that this equips us in some really significant ways. So we're going to work through the whole chapter and there will be some times where we'll kind of deviate a little bit so you may want to place a, a marker here. But we'll start with verses 1 through 4 um, and after reading this we'll kind of review a little bit of the circumstances here in verses 1 through 4. So Exodus chapter 14 verses 1 through 4. Now the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Tell the sons of Israel to turn back and camp before Pihahiroth between Migdal and the sea. You shall camp in front of Baal Zephon opposite it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the sons of Israel, They're wandering aimlessly in the wilderness. The wilderness has shut them in. Thus I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will chase after them. And I will be honored through Pharaoh and all his army. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. And they did so. So we covered this a little bit in class, but instead of taking the easy way back in chapter 13, they could have gone directly east out of Egypt and there was no sea crossing. It would have just been land 
But the Philistines were over there, and so chapter, thir- chapter 13, verse 17, God did not lead them in that direction because if they saw war, then they might be too intimidated and be too scared and return to Egypt. Ironically, they're going to bring up returning to Egypt, and so it's like God was factoring in the timidity of the nation and what they could and could not handle. But you look at verse 2. Tell the sons of Israel to turn back. Israel makes a U-turn here. So I want you to try to picture this. This is like millions of people going southeast from Egypt. God is deliberately taking them the long way instead of the shortcut through the Philistine territory. And by the time they get to the Red Sea and reach a dead end, you know, they've reached, they can't go any farther. I mean, the sea cannot be crossed at this point. And God says, now turn around and camp. And what this is going to do is to Pharaoh... It's going to look like Israel is lost and confused. So verse 3, so this is going to make Pharaoh think, well, Israel's just wandering around aimlessly in the wilderness. They're, they're shut in. It's like they've, they've trapped themselves. What Pharaoh thinks is check for the children of Israel, God is going to turn into checkmate for Egypt and for Pharaoh. And so where Pharaoh thinks is going to be his great victory now to get Israel back, God is going to turn this around back on him. And to Israel, this puts them in an incredibly vulnerable position. In fact, I would say this might be the most vulnerable position they could possibly be in. Because what they're going to see is Egypt and all of the armies of Egypt, all of the chariots, all of the officers with Pharaoh coming from one direction, and they're going to look back in the other direction, and there's the Red Sea trapping them from the other direction, so there's nowhere to go. And God is fully aware that he's put them in a position where there is no escape once Pharaoh comes out and goes to pursue them. But why does God do this? Look at verse 4 again. And this is something that God emphasizes twice. He emphasizes this again in verse 17. Why does God do this? So that he would be honored through Pharaoh's army. You know, the greater the threat, the more amazing the victory when that threat is overcome. The more intimidating the enemy, the more amazing the power is that overcomes that enemy that had been so intimidating, the more hopeless the situation seems where everywhere you look, hope is being taken away. There's there's no avenue of escape. The more hopeless things look, the more amazing it becomes when God provides hope in an otherwise entirely hopeless situation. The greater the fear the greater the Israelites, the more fright that they have, the more intimidated they are, the more amazing it is, the God, the way that God is able to comfort them and encourage them. And so all of this is set up where God is not ignorant of where Israel is positioned, but all of this will mean that God is going to be glorified more through their vulnerability and inability to escape than if they had just gone the way of the Philistines, the easy way. And I want you to think, too, from Pharaoh's perspective, it looked like things were in chaos. (laughs) It didn't look like God was in control, not even to Israel, right? We already read in the Bible class and Jason in the scripture reading that Israel was like, what are we doing here? Didn't we tell you it would be better for us to have to serve the Egyptians than to die out here in the wilderness? And so it didn't look like God was in control to anybody except seemingly to Moses. But I want you to think about this. When you look at the world, If we look too much at the world, it looks like it's in chaos. Like God's not in control. Like things things have erupted into utter chaos all around us. 
but God is still in control. Things in our lives, there might be things that happen that are extremely inconvenient or disastrous or tragedy. It may look like, God, how are you letting this happen? What's going on? God is still in control. Because God's control of a situation isn't determined by our perspective or whether or not things look like to us they're set in proper order. Because that's not how it looked to Pharaoh and that's not how it looked to Israel. And I want you to think about how this relates to Jesus because I think there's many parallels in the deliverance of the Red Sea and the way that Jesus gained victory in the cross. Did it look like God was in control when Jesus was suffering on the cross? To anybody except Jesus all by himself? (laughs) To Peter, did it look like God was still in control? Did it look like to the Pharisees that God was protecting Jesus and that God was working these things out for Jesus' deliverance to Pilate? Did it look like the God of the Hebrews had good control of the situation, especially for Jesus' sake? It looked like this was Satan's overwhelming victory. And we're not told what Satan was like thinking behind the scenes as Jesus was being crucified, but I have a pretty safe feeling that Satan was thinking that he had gained the final victory, that Jesus' death on the cross was an overwhelming defeat for God and for his chosen one. But what was Satan's seemingly overwhelming victory? God was going to turn it into Satan's most overwhelming defeat. What Pharaoh thought was going to be an easy and overwhelming victory, what Israel thought was going to be Pharaoh's victory, God was about to turn it into an overwhelming defeat. And when Jesus was at his weakest and most vulnerable, God's demonstrated his power and his overwhelming strength more than ever before. Not through healing the sick, not through crowds of people being amazed at what was happening. It's when Jesus seemed to have lost everything, when Jesus seemed to have lost everybody, when Jesus was being tortured, when his hands and feet were nailed down and he could not do anything, and it seemed like, it seemed like he could not do anything and that there was no escape. God demonstrated his strength and was glorified more through the cross, more overwhelmingly than any other event in Jesus' life. I would even argue all put together, right? And I want you to think about this. Are you okay with God being glorified in your weakness? And I want you to think like how we usually want to give God the glory, right? Like we want to be the ones who are standing up at bat, bases are loaded, we hit a home run, knock it out of the park, and like after we finish and everybody's come through home and the game is won, they say, man, how did you do that? And you go, glory to God, man. Like glory to God that I hit that home run. Or like, you know, we hit golf ball and it goes hole in one, glory to God. We throw the football and touchdown and overwhelming odds, glory to God, right? But are you okay being glorifying God through your weakness, through what looks like you being defeated, right? That is the cross. That is the anthem of the life of the Apostle Paul. That is the focus of so many of the epistles that are given to the churches, is that God is not being glorified for, from your achievements, your successes in the world, or your job promotions. God is glorified when we trust him and show his power through our weaknesses. And when we show God's power through trusting him, 
when we're facing trials and still find hope and joy through those things. Um, this will be a little awkward, but there's so many opportunities, I think, where God can be glorified, where we rob ourselves, or we rob others of seeing it. And I think we have an example of being able to see where those opportunities have been properly, properly utilized with John and Gianna. They've been facing so many trials and hardships recently, and this is just one example of many here. I know that there's many who have been facing trials with endurance and hope. But where John and Gianna have had despair, they haven't let themselves lose hope in their despair. And in trusting themselves to God, I've seen it strengthen the church as a whole, unify the church further, have more humility in our unity together. There are opportunities like that, not just in major ways, but intimate ways, where God can be glorified and show his glory through inconveniences, trials, fear. And so let's move on to 5 through 14, because once, once reality sets in, so like these are ideals, right? Like here's what God is going to do ideally, but we have to deal with the reality that when Israel sees the situation, they just descend into hopeless despair, right? So let's read 5 through 14. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his servants had a change of heart toward the people. And they said, what is this we have done that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made his chariot ready and took his people with him, and he took 600 select chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with the officers over all of them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he chased after the sons of Israel as the sons of Israel were going out boldly. Then the Egyptians chased after them with all the horses and the chariots of Pharaoh, his horsemen and his army, and they overtook them camping by the sea beside Pi-Hahiroth in front of Baal-Zephon. As Pharaoh drew near, the sons of Israel looked, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them. And they became very frightened. So the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord. Then they said to Moses, Is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you dealt with us in this way, bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not the word which we spoke to you in Egypt, saying, Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. But Moses said to the people, Do not fear. Stand by and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you will never see them again forever. The Lord will fight for you while you keep silence. So this is supposed to come one by one. So just pretend like one by one, these are going to appear, right? Starting from the top. So Pharaoh takes all of his chariots and begins to pursue Israel. And I want you to think about like the scene here where Pharaoh has all of Israel gone at this point. And you imagine him looking around, maybe they're trying to like begin to clean up the mess and they realize like there's no slaves left. You know, we don't have our servants who are supposed to be cleaning up our messes or like washing our dishes or like cultivating the land. And you imagine like, what have we done? How are we letting Israel go when our nation is left in such shambles? And so God hardens his heart. He takes all of the chariots that he has, all of his horses, all of his army. And when they arrive and become... Uh, within view of Israel, Israel becomes frightened. And I want you to think about Pharaoh like Satan. And I think there's many parallels we can draw between the attitude that Pharaoh had toward Israel and the attitude that Satan has toward God's people. That he'll do whatever it takes to keep us from freedom in Christ or to bring us back into slavery. You know, if there's somebody who's considering salvation, what they need to be do to be saved if they're thinking about being baptized for the remission of their sins, Satan will do whatever it takes to keep someone from making that decision. And if somebody does make that decision, Satan's going to do whatever it takes 
to bring them back into bondage and back into slavery, right? And I've seen that many times, not just with somebody who's considering becoming a Christian. I've seen it with those who have just been baptized and all of a sudden there's a whole plethora of trials that bombard them very quickly. I've seen it with brethren who have belonged to the Lord for decades, right? Satan is always considering ways that he can either destroy us, deceive us, and bring us back into slavery again. And why did Israel despair? So notice again in verse um, 11 and 12, did you notice how much they bring up Egypt? It's like five or six times they bring up Egypt. You know, it wasn't wrong for them to be frightened. It's how quickly they descend into hopeless despair. And they only saw two options, death or slavery. It's like either we die or we go back to Egypt and we go back to our slavery all over again. And God was going to give them a third option. We'll talk about that more in a minute. But how does our fear descend into despair? I think it happens when instead of dealing with trials, fears, anxieties, and bringing it to God, we deal with it in a way that's like the old man. You know, instead of looking to God for comfort, for relief, for endurance, we look to the world. That maybe there's a substance I'm used to using to gain comfort and relief and forget about my problems. Or maybe entertainment becomes an idol where, you know, there's nothing wrong with entertainment, but it can be used as, that, that's my escape, that is my God, that is my comfort, right? Or you can even be relationships that instead of looking to God, I am depending on this person to be God for me and to find all of my refuge, all of my comfort in this person. Or there might be sin in other ways where we look for relief and pleasure and comfort instead of looking to God. And that is Satan's deceit, is either we look to death and die or we look to slavery and the old man and deal with things like the world deals with things and we don't seek salvation or comfort from God. And so God offers a third option. You know, they tell Moses, we're either going to die or go back to Egypt. That's it. That's all the options we have. And by the way, where could they have looked to know that there was a third option? The pillar of fire and the cloud was right there. All they had to do was look up and they would have seen it, right? So how do we find comfort or hope and not descend into worldly mindedness when we're fearful or being tempted or enduring trials? We look up. We look to God's word. We remember who God is, that he's powerful, that he's present with us, right? And so God offers a third option. Now, I want you to think about this with Moses in verse 13 and 14 when he responds. Does it seem like Moses knew the plan yet? Like what God was going to do? It seems like Moses is the only person that without knowing the plan, he still trusts God. You know, God hasn't brought us out here to let us fall into the hands of the Egyptians and die. God has clearly demonstrated he's able to do miraculous things beyond our expectations. And you remember with Israel, he didn't say, okay, plague one is going to be this, plague two. He just said, I'm going to work my wonders and I'll bring you out, right? And so it's not like God had defined a battle strategy for Israel and then came to agreement with them first on, are, are you okay with miracle one? Okay, if, if you're in agreement, we'll proceed forward, right? So Moses understood it's not up to Israel to know the mechanics or the details of the plan. The point is just trust God. Trust in who he is. Trust in what he's done. Trust in what he's promised. 
and this may have been kind of awkward because like verse 15, God says, why are you crying out to me? It's like I did picture like Moses saying like, you know, trust in the Lord, he'll deliver you. Wait a minute. <laughs> and then he goes to pray to God and cry out to him and God says, why are you crying out to me? Go forward, go through the Red Sea. So Moses did not know the plan, but he trusted God. And I think that's a critical component, a critical aspect of faith that protects us from descending into hopeless despair. You know, we might not know how God is going to work all things out for good, how God is going to provide the way of escape and temptation that I can endure it, how God can bring meaning to tragedies I face in my life or, you know, problems that I'm facing, how God is going to bring me any comfort or joy through anything. All I need to do is trust God and look to him and trust that God has a pattern of doing exactly the thing he's promised, even when those things were not understood or expected. Look at Psalm 77. So the psalmists utilize the Exodus for exactly this point. This is one of my favorite psalms in reference to the Exodus in showing the kind of practical application the psalmists made from the Exodus in their history. And I want you to look at the beginning. We're just going to briefly touch on a couple of things, but this psalmist is suffering. He is in despair. So you notice he says in verse 2, in the day of my trouble I sought the Lord. So he's not going to let himself descend into hopeless despair. He says, in the night my hand was stretched out without weariness, my soul refused to be comforted. Verse verse 3, when I remember God, then I am disturbed. When I sigh, then my spirit grows faint. You have held my eyelids opened. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. You know, in verse 7 through 10, he considers these aspects of God's promises. Is God rejected forever? Is he not going to be favorable again? Is his loving kindness ceased? Are his promises failing? Has he forgotten to be gracious? And in verse 11 through the rest of the psalm, he determines to remember what God has done. And I want you to think about the Exodus. You know, the psalmist isn't going to say, I know exactly what you're about to do. But he's going to say, I know what you've done, and I know who you are. That's where the psalm is going to end. Look at verse 11. I shall remember the deeds of the Lord. Surely I will remember your wonders of old. I will meditate on all your work and muse on your deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your strength among the peoples. You have by your power redeemed your people, the sons of Jacob and Joseph. The waters saw you, O God. The waters saw you. They were in anguish. The deeps also trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth a sound. Your arrows flashed here and there. The sound of your thunder was in the whirlwind. The lightnings lit up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was in the sea and your paths in the mighty waters and your footprints may not be known. Meaning, I don't know the path before it comes, but God has a plan. God has a way. Verse 20, you led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Psalm over. So this psalmist begins the psalm saying, God, I'm at the end of my rope. I'm so distressed. I'm trying to trust in you. I don't know what to do. I don't know where to go. But everything looks so hopeless that, man, have you forgotten to show your loving kindness? Has it all ceased? Have your promises come to an end? And he says, but I know what God has done. I know who he is. 
and I know he delivered Israel when they thought there wasn't a way. And when they thought all hope was gone, God still delivered them and defied their expectations. And I want you to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 1 because this isn't just an anthem of the psalmists. There's something so important about this in our growth and maturing in faith that Paul is commending to the Corinthians. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 through 11. And again, think about Paul just trusting God, trusting what he's done, and the kind of assurance that gives him. 2 Corinthians 1, 8 through 11. For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired even of life. So again, you have Paul. He's descending into despair. But I want you to notice what anchors that despair in verse 9. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead who delivered us from so great a peril of death and will deliver us, he on whom we have set our hope, and he will yet deliver us. You also joining in helping uh, us through your prayers, that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the favor bestowed on us through the prayers of many. And so Paul is saying, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what other trials I'm going to face in the future. But what I do know is God is going to deliver his people. God is going to deliver me no matter what trials I face. God is going to be faithful. And it doesn't matter then what happens or how much I know about a situation. But all I need to do then is set my hope on God, in verse 9, who raises the dead. So Paul faced despair. Paul faced circumstances that not only looked hopeless, but caused him to not have any strength in himself to find hope, but instead he trusted in the Lord. And in verse 11, God is glorified. And so those opportunities for God to be glorified, Paul utilized those things and sought to share with the Corinthians in those things. So we're going to look at 15 through 31 and back in Exodus 14. So back in Exodus 14, 15 through 21 with the way that God did deliver Israel. So we'll read this and then move into the next section of the lesson with the way that Israel is delivered. 15 through 21, or 31. Then the Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? Tell the sons of Israel to go forward. As for you, lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. And the sons of Israel shall go through the midst of the sea on dry land. As for me, behold, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians that they will go in after them. And I will be honored through Pharaoh and all his army through his chariots and his horsemen. Then the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord, when I am honored through Pharaoh, through his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who had been going before the camp of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them. So it came between the camp of Egypt and the camp of Israel, and there was the cloud along with the darkness, yet it gave light at night. Thus the one did not come near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord swept the sea back by a strong east wind all night, and to turn the sea into dry land, so the waters were divided. The sons of Israel went through the midst of the sea on the dry land, and the waters were like a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Then the Egyptians took up the pursuit, and all Pharaoh's horses and his chariots and his horsemen went in after them into the midst of the sea. At morning watch... The Lord looked down on the army of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and cloud 
and brought the army of the Egyptians into confusion. He caused their chariot, chariot wheels to swerve and he made them drive with difficulty. So the Egyptians said, let us flee from Israel for the Lord is fighting for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may come back over the Egyptians, over their chariots and their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the sea returned to its normal state at daybreak while the Egyptians were fleeing right into it. Then the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen, even Pharaoh's entire army that had gone into the sea after them, and not even one of them remained. But the sons of Israel walked on dry land through the midst of the sea, and the waters were like a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. When Israel saw the great power which the Lord had used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. So this next slide, just do the same thing. Picture it one, one at a time here. Um, but dealing with Israel's deliverance, God parts the Red Sea, he fights for Israel, and causes the water ultimately to come down on the Egyptians. And that day, they are permanently separated from Egypt. They begin their new identity as the people of God, and they're sealed with God as a nation that belongs to him. Hebrews 11.29 brings up what Israel did here as an act of faith. It says that by faith they passed through the Red Sea as if on dry land. And I love looking at Israel's crossing the Red Sea as a very helpful anchoring point on really defining what is biblical faith. And I love pointing this out in studies that I might be having with someone about salvation, baptism. Salvation is oftentimes in the world, in interacting with people, just a conversation that has to happen very consistently. Is faith in just saying a prayer to be saved? Is it on just you believe in the Lord with your heart and God comes into your heart and you will be saved? What is biblical saving faith? So what I, what I ask people when we come to the Exodus on this example was Israel saved by their works when they passed through the Red Sea? Was Israel saved by their works or were they saved by faith in the working of God? Now, since this is disconnected from anything that seems too personal, it's very easy to work out. Well, they're clearly saved by faith. And then the question is, well, they had to walk through the Red Sea, didn't they? Wasn't there some way they had to surrender to God and, and walk through in obedience to him? And they'll say, yes. Say, well, okay, but they did that, but was that through faith or were they meriting their salvation now because they walked through the Red Sea? And of, of course not. They to think they merited something by simply walking through the sea is ridiculous. God worked salvation. Israel still needed to put their trust in the way of salvation, though. And they had to surrender to God in walking through it. And 1 Corinthians 10 pictures this as an illustration of baptism and salvation. That Israel, when they crossed the Red Sea, it's like they were baptized into Moses, kind of immersing themselves through water in making the difference between their time in slavery and their identity as slaves and their freedom after they crossed the Red Sea. And the question I like to ask too, were they free before they crossed the Red Sea? When were they really free? When were they saved? 
It's when they crossed the sea. The waters closed over Egypt. And I want you to look at verse 30. When did God save Israel? Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. When was Israel saved? When they were on the other side of the Red Sea, when they were baptized into Moses, and they were separated from Egypt by water, and the Egyptians, in pursuing them, were drowned by the water that God closed in on them. And I want you to imagine the scene in verse 30. I mean, you know, everything leading up to this, you know, I mean, if you haven't seen the movies, they're fairly spectacular. Even the 1950s one, right? Where, like, you know, you see the walls of water, and I still don't know, like, how they did that. There's, like, I'm sure you can watch, like, how they did that special effect. Really amazing for the 1950s. Or you look like the Prince of Egypt and the way it's animated. But I don't think anything can really convey the reality of just how incredible this would have been for Israel, how afraid they were before. And then you look at verse 31, when Israel saw the great power which the Lord had used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord. They went from being terrified that they had come to the end of their lives to being fearful of the Lord when they saw his great power that he had used against the Egyptians. So imagine just the adrenaline of the situation. You're running for your lives to the Red Sea. This water is on both sides of you. You've had the pillar of cloud and fire that God has been using. You know, you've been, again, just constantly in anxiety about what's going on, the, the plagues against Egypt. And now everything's quiet. And you imagine this dawn of a new day. As I hope you noticed in verse 27, this is happening at daybreak. This new day comes. The water, I'm picturing, becomes becomes calm. And what begins floating up are the corpses of the Egyptians who are trying to pursue them. And you imagine the awe, the thankfulness, the deep reverence that they would have for God and just the sinking appreciation of what's just been done for them by God. And we see that extend in chapter 15 with Moses' song that gets sung celebrating deliverance. But the epistles, we have many times that the epistles written to Christians will reflect on baptism, salvation, even if baptism is not directly brought up. Why are those things brought up? You know, why is it in Romans Romans chapter 6, he brings up what happened in baptism again. Why is it in Colossians chapter 2, he brings up again what baptism did and what God did in baptism. Why is it in 1 Peter 3, he reflects on, hey, baptism did save you. Was it to just convince them all over again? Like, hey, just in case you thought that wasn't needed, it really was. No. It's to help us appreciate what we take for granted. The victory that God won. You know, I had Colossians 2 on the board much earlier, which mentions that Jesus, when he died on the cross, he gained a victory over all rule and authority, over all power. He triumphed over them and made a public display or a public mockery of the power set against them. You know, we don't see clearly enough Jesus standing against the greatest powers in all existence, heaven or earth, And all of the forces that Satan could muster, all of the power that he had at his disposal, was all standing against Jesus while he stood alone against it all. And if we could just see more clearly 
the way that Jesus won that battle, not just in the death and humiliation of the cross, but the strength and the victory against those forces. And if we could see that when we were baptized, that we were buried with Christ in baptism and raised up to newness of life, that God gave us victory with Jesus, it would change the way that we think. So why are epistles written to churches, why do they reflect on baptism? Because we need to learn to put more value on what God did for us when we were saved. There's so much victory and power that God worked from the first moment we came up out of the waters of baptism. It's a snapshot of the things that God continues to do for us through our faith, of something that's going to be overwhelmingly more perfectly permanent when we're with God. But before we talk more about that, again, just that nature of victory that we're given, the permanence of that victory, One of the big things with Exodus that goes into the wilderness is Israel keeps going back to Egypt and identifying themselves in their language as slaves who are still wanting to go back to Egypt and return back to their bondage. We need to talk less like we're still enslaved to sin and more like we are victorious soldiers standing with Christ in his his army. We need to not talk about sin like it's just, it's too overwhelming. It's too powerful. I just can't overcome it. I don't don't know how to do it. That's slave talk. We are no longer slaves of sin. We've been given freedom, a freedom that holds a permanence. And God equips us to overcome as we've reflected on in lessons recently. So again, the Exodus was a snapshot of what was meant to be permanent for the nation And what, even more so for us in Christ, is meant to be spiritually more significantly permanent through our faith in Jesus. But especially that we share in glory with God and his judgment when we finally are able to see God reign in ultimate victory. When we're able to share with him and be with him in eternal victory, having conquered sin and death. So if you're here this morning, and you're here and contemplating salvation, and you're putting off, putting on Christ in faith, repentance, baptism, Satan wants to do everything he can to get you to delay that decision, to put it off, to not do it. When you decide to do it, something may come up in your mind. God gives you the reason to act in faith. And if you are here and your life, you see that you are enslaved to sin and need the help of the church, the support, the accountability, God gives the church, the local church, as a gift to Christians so that we can support each other and reinforce our identity as victorious soldiers in the army of Christ. If there's anything we can do for you, we'd encourage you to bring it forward while we stand and sing the invitation song.